we are picking up kind of where we left off last week. We've been talking about this idea of kingdom. And kingdom is, is arguably one of the biggest topics and in, in, uh, themes that Jesus teaches throughout uh, the different gospels. But in particular, the gospel of Matthew, which we have been kind of working our way through. And it probably sounds funny because most of us, when we think of Jesus, we want to think about like a bearded dude who looks like Mel Gibson holding sheep, maybe little kids surrounded by him. And those are all kind of good pictures. They're, they're true. Or we want to think about just heaven or hell. We're going to think about lots of those stuff. But the kingdom was his primary thing that he taught about. And the big question just comes out to what is the kingdom? What does this mean for us? How do we deal with this? And if you haven't been with us again, it's okay. Basically, what we've been discussing is this idea that in every kingdom... What does there have to be to be a kingdom? A king. There has to be a king. And so we've been talking about, and it's not any sort of spoiler alert that we're waiting for Easter to like reveal, like, I bet you didn't see it coming. You thought it was going to be Peter, but Jesus is actually the king. We haven't been doing some sort of big reveal. The whole time, Jesus is the king, and that his kingdom, which has came, is this new way of life that is fulfilling what God had been teaching, what God had been longing for uh, through his people all along. But we're seeing the promises coming to uh, fruition through Jesus. And the kingdom really just becomes that we, as followers of Jesus, become part of the kingdom by following the king, following his will, his ways. Last week, we, we dove in at sort of this 30,000 uh, feet up view of this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of this manifesto of the kingdom, Jesus' biggest teaching. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, read that. It's the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Great, great stuff. And last week, we, we looked at this idea of wisdom. We looked at this idea of the wisdom that Jesus gave, this kingdom wisdom, so much of it was important, not just because it is true, not just because it's good practical advice for us, but it's because of the authority in which the one speaking it has. That in a kingdom, the king has the greatest authority. That when the king says something, that is what should be. And we're not talking about, again, we have to, we have to rid ourselves, we have to realize we have baggage, right? There are certain words that we maybe have baggage with. I, now, I've told you guys this story before, but I'll, some of you haven't heard this before. I have some weird baggage with veterinarians, okay? Again, Katie Rigsby, I don't, I don't know if she's here this morning. She's a veterinarian. I love her. I trust her. But I have, I have a little bit of a bad thing, an authority thing. When I was in kindergarten, we went on a field trip, and a girl from my class, her dad was a chaperone on this field trip, and he was a veterinarian. And we were at a farm, and he pointed out brown cows, and he said, anyone like chocolate milk? And I was like, heck yes. Like, I need my nest quick every day. And he said, did you know that brown cows make chocolate milk? And he just straight up left it there. There was no like, ha ha, gotcha. He left it there. And I walked home like a chump to my two older brothers and my parents. And we're sitting around the dinner table. And, you know, everyone's kind of sharing what happened with your day. And normally I got nothing. Normally I was just, again, one of those normal kids like, nothing. I didn't learn anything. This day I was like, listen. We need to get a brown cow. We drink so much chocolate milk in this house. This is a good business proposition for our family. And my parents are just like, my brothers laughed at me. They did not let me down uh, for a long time on that one. So we have this hard thing with authority, though, right? You know, I mean, maybe you don't have your veterinarian story, but even even like culturally, let's be honest, we grow up in our like history classes. We learn about how we overthrew the tyrant King George. Again, I'm not saying he wasn't a tyrant, all those things. But like we're like, whoa, kings? No. Authority figures? No. It's interesting if, you, if you're if you a weird geek like me and you like to study things about 
kind of patterns of different generations. It's interesting that if, if you go back like four generations and as time has gone on, every generation increasingly gets less and less trusting and more and more skeptical of, of positions of authority. And again, some of those are for good reason, but over time it becomes this place where it's almost like I cannot t- trust anyone other than me, myself, and I. No one can tell me what to do. I mean, that's why we even sometimes see this where marriages fall apart because not even the person that you have committed your life to sometimes can speak into your life. So as we approach the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we're going to continue on uh, talking about authority, may I ask us to please maybe check our thoughts on authority figures and baggage at the door for a minute. And I'm saying that to myself, too. Because there's this reality that if we truly want to be authentic followers of Jesus, we want to be pursuing the king and the kingdom, we can't say, hey, I like this piece of what you say, but not this one. I want this and that. That doesn't work. There has to be this full allegiance to the authority of the king. All right, now that I've probably made everyone feel uncomfortable, let's dive into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. If not, it is going to be on the screen. And uh, we have a little bit of territory to cover. I only have about two hours worth of material, so uh, hopefully we'll be through this quick. Just kidding. It's not going to be that long. But we are going to cover quite a few things. So everyone take a deep breath real quick because we're about to dive in, okay? (gasps) I'll take a drink of coffee real quick. All right, so in between when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount and where we're about to get, he just kind of goes on this healing spree where like he is just like, oh, bam, hey, you're blind, bam, got you. Hey, you're demon-obsessed, got you, bam, bam, bam. And then we get to this part in the story, and it says this, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, he came back to his hometown. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. What a cool story. Some of you may be familiar with this story. What my hope is this morning is we're going to kind of pick apart some of this story, and we're going to to get into another story afterwards. But let's talk about this story now that we've read it in its fullness. Now, some of you are like, I've heard some of this story. This seems familiar, whether you grew up in church or not. Um, What's interesting is there's, there's four different Gospels. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but there's also uh, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them write from their own sort of perspective, their own sort of audience they're writing to. And so what's interesting is maybe you're like, I think I've heard this story before, but I feel like they're missing a key part. Uh, in, the, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, when this story happens, uh, maybe, you're, maybe this will jog your memory. What happens is this group of friends who take this man who's paralyzed, and there's such a crowded place that Jesus is in, that they actually get up on the roof of this house and they begin to dig in the roof. I mean, we're talking about straight up like vandalization in the name of getting your friend healed, right? And then they mission impossible, lower him down in there. Now, that's a great story, am I right? Like, it, it is a really good story. And the issue is, though, and why I think Matthew left it out of his Gospels is, one, 
that he probably assumes that the audience already knows that part. And two, have you ever heard a story where someone wants to tell you a story and, and part way through the story they tell you something that's so interesting that you just sort of lose, lose track of what is actually going on in the point of their story, right? Like they, they say something casually. I was out with someone uh, this week and they, they said, yeah, we had our neighbors over for dinner one time and they just kind of casually dropped like, yeah, we used to be a part of a cult and then they kept on and just went in their story. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone says, yeah, we used to be a part of a cult, I don't care what you say the rest of the time. If you're not explaining that, I'm not, I'm not there for it, right? There are moments where in a story, when you tell something that's kind of out of the ordinary, uncharacteristic, you almost lose what the true story was. It's almost like this, I missed it. And I think that's what Matthew does because he realizes that if you're just reading the story and you uh, just hear about this Mission Impossible mission, probably the big thing you're going to take away is, man, that was cool because it was. And there is this lesson that we do learn from this. We learn this lesson that uh, that is true even if you add that part in there, that there's something beautiful about a community of faith, Right? There's something good about having people who are for you. If we read the story again, we realize that it says that Jesus says he saw their faith. He doesn't say, hey, I saw the man lying on the mat and his faith was so great that I decided to heal him. He saw their faith. There was something beautiful about a collective body of people who so believed. They probably had been hearing all of this about what was going on with Jesus and his healing spree. And they heard all of this and they said, we deeply loved our friend and man, if, if this Jesus can do all these things, we love him so much, we are going to make it possible no matter what for him to be seen. And it is by this faith, it is by this sort of just beautiful community that Jesus decides that he's going to heal him. Here's one of the things that we learn from this story. Faith is both personal and communal. Faith is both personal and communal. What I mean by that is there's this reality that um, good news or bad news for you, no one can choose faith in Jesus. No one can choose to give their life to Jesus for you. Parents, whether we like it or not, we cannot choose that for our children. Whether we like it or not, we can't choose it for our spouses, for our friends, for our family members. We can't do that. Now, there are things we can do that help, but we can't do that. So there's this reality that for everyone, faith is a very personal thing. But there's also this reality that if we study Jesus and his teaching, we study this kingdom of God, uh, concept, we realize that if the personal transformation doesn't lead to a communal sort of environment in which we're living, then we've missed it. We've missed this point that we were not created to be alone, but we are created to be in community. And Jesus is so enamored, he's so amazed by just the faith of this group of people that he decides he's going to heal them. Now he goes on and he just says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's really interesting uh, why sometimes it is fun to read some of the original Greek and stuff like that, which let me just tell you guys, I'm not smart enough to do those sort of things. I just read smart people's books who tell me what they said. Um, so you're amongst friends if you're like, I'm not that smart. Me too. Um, but they actually talk about how the better translation would be something more like, uh, take heart, my little boy. And that, that just kind of changes it. Take heart, my son, feels like, like an old man at a coffee shop who says, how are you doing, son? Like, it doesn't feel as personal. It just sort of feels like, ah, that's cute and charming. But when you hear little boy, man, there's something that just sort of shrinks you down to this beautiful, innocent thing where you just want to be hugged, right? Can, can I be honest with you guys? Anyone else feel this way as an adult when life is just where you're like, like, you're just sort of like, I just want to hug. Someone hold me. I'm just being honest, okay? Maybe I'm a weirdo, but I'm just going to be real. Sometimes it's like, I just want someone to hug me. Tell me I'm pretty. Feed me food. 
you're listening, my wife, there you go. But it's this beautiful personal moment where he talks to him. Now, what's kind of crazy is let's, let's be honest. Now, some of you are already probably thinking this in the story. Okay. Man who is paralyzed, can't move, legs don't work, whatever. Who knows all the story? Obviously has something physically wrong with his body. Jesus' first response isn't, sweet, you guys have great faith, let me heal your legs. He doesn't do that, does he? Why in the world doesn't he do that? We have to go to another story to understand why he doesn't do that. If you were to read in the Gospel of John, you'd, you'd read a story about how there is a man who was born blind. And people come to Jesus and they begin to ask, they begin to question, so Jesus, who sinned to make this man blind? Was it his parents or was it him? You see, culturally, sometimes we have different sort of um, bad misinformation, just things that we sort of like, yep, that's, that's what that is. In this time, in this culture, although the Old Testament didn't back up any of these claims, in fact, they said quite opposite, and I could tell you verses, but we're not going to get into it right now. What ended up happening is Jesus' response was he realized that in that moment, in the Gospel of John in particular, that these people had this bad, misconstrued idea that, that, that God must be angry. He must be angry, angry with them. So it obviously was the fact that this man was blind had to do with the fact that either he did something super bad and he was bad, or his parents did. Now, this is awful because we've talked about this before here, but do you know what the difference between guilt and shame is? Guilt is, I did something bad. That's okay. It's okay to feel guilty. Right now, we're working on that with my almost three-year-old. Hey, when you do things bad, it's okay that you feel bad. You did something bad. Don't do it again, please. But shame is where you begin to internalize it and you say, I am bad. And so there's so much shame in this ancient culture when people had different sort of uh, things that were different than them, like being blind or paralyzed. And people in culture would look around and they would probably snicker and probably be like, what do you think? Do you think it was his dad? Do you think it was his mom? Maybe it was him. Maybe, maybe he's just a super weirdo. Maybe he does something super weird when no one's around. And Jesus knew that he had to begin to unpack, deconstruct those terrible notions. And so his response in the Gospel of John is just this, that it is neither this man nor his parents who sinned, but this happened that the work of God may be displayed among him. I love that response. It's, he, he, he just totally obliterates this idea of, was this his fault? Was this his parents' fault? No, this was not his fault. This had nothing to do with his sin. This had nothing to do with his soul. This is a body thing. We live in a broken, fallen world where things happen. And I wish I had a better, cool, theological answer to why bad things happen to good people, why different things happen to people, but I don't. There's just this reality that we live in this world. What I do know is that there is hope because we have a Savior who sits with us in the midst of all of those things that happen. A God who can work out all the things that are bad in our life for good if we trust him. And so he deals with that. He throws it aside. All right, let's go back to Matthew. Now, again, so why did he first lead in with this idea of my little boy, your sins are forgiven? It wasn't just for that man in that moment. It was for the whole crowd to hear. It was for them to hear that, listen, if you're so worried that all of this had to do, that obviously the sin was his physical defect, let me just blow that out of the water by forgiving the sin first. And yet there he still lied paralyzed. He just obliterates that notion. But yes, there is also what probably maybe some of you have heard about this story, which is true. 
I think Jesus also deeply cares more about our soul than our body. I mean, he does care about our body. Hear, hear you that. It's not as if, like, if you have something bad going on with your body, God's like, nah, whatever, you're fine, suck it up. I don't think he looks at that sort of thing and doesn't have compassion, doesn't have grace, doesn't sit with us in those moments. I wholly believe he does. But I think he also sees the long game. That at the end of the day, this is all going to fade away. You know, it's really interesting. Probably in a hundred years, most everyone in this room will hardly be remembered. You know, you go on over time. These things go away, but our soul lasts forever. Our soul is eternal. And so, yes, there is this reality that, my friends, Jesus does care far more about our eternal destiny than just our present circumstances. He cares about our present circumstances. Don't, don't get me wrong, but there's this reality. Uh, he does this teaching at one point, too, where it's, it's kind of graphic and weird when you think about it, but he talks about, hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one hand than to have your whole body thrown into the fire. That's kind of an intense teaching. But I think it gives us a pretty good indication that 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 is more of the important thing. Now, back to this story. Obviously, the religious leaders of the time, they're mad. They call him out blaspheming, which is just a fancy word for basically saying that is, you know, that is just counter to everything. That is unholy. So why did they do this? Why did they do this? You know, some could say that, yes, it primarily was just we don't buy into the fact that he could be the son of God, the Messiah. But I think maybe there's something even deeper. You see, they have this hard notion to let go of the past. And also they had something pretty good going on. You see, in ancient culture, especially for the Jewish people, for them to experience forgiveness, we take for granted today that we can experience forgiveness by just asking someone forgiveness, but also just praying literally moments after we do something bad to God and asking him for forgiveness. For those people in that time, what they would have to do, they'd have to grab their little lamb, and they'd travel from a far distance oftentimes, and they would go to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if they didn't want to carry, you know, their 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 sheep a long way, because I feel like that could be pretty hot in the desert, what they would likely do is they would buy one when they got to the temple. You see, what happened, though, at the temple is there were money traders who would say, hey, that's great that you have uh, this coin here, but you're actually going to need this one for the temple. So let us exchange it. By the way, there's a bit of an inflation rate. And there'd be other times, too, where people would come with their perfect lamb that was great for their sacrifice that they carried for a long period of time, and they'd say, ooh, it's got some defects. We don't have, you can't do this one. You're going to have to leave that at the, the door. But let me tell you about some of these great ones we have behind door number two. Sold for an incredible rate. You see, what was happening is that the temple was becoming a pretty lucrative business where people quite literally were having to buy their own forgiveness from God. And what would end up happening, though, once you would get in there, is you would get in there and, and, and you, would, you would go to a priest with your little uh, thing. This is pretty graphic and pretty weird, but they, there's this deep-held belief that uh, for a debt to be paid, for forgiveness to be had, there had to be the shedding of blood. If you want to read some weird stuff, read Leviticus chapter 4. None of you probably ever will want to, but go ahead and do that. And what they would do is they would cut the animal and they would drain out the blood, and the blood there would be spilled to forgive the sin. Can you imagine? That would be kind of an awkward moment where you're just sitting there like, hey, thanks a lot, uh, Lammy, uh, for taking this one for me. Just be an awkward kind of moment. But at the end of it, then the priest, who was sort of the pastorly person of the day, would look at the person and say, all right, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, I'm glad we don't do that because I'm not a big blood person in general. But also, I look back and think about, that's kind of an easy way out, right? You just do one little thing and bam, you're done. But Jesus begins to decide to put a new way in place. He begins to start to say, no longer will you go to the temple. And later in Scripture, he talks about how we, in our hearts, when we have Christ, become the temple. But in this moment, Jesus changes everything by basically saying, listen, what you knew before is no more. No longer are you going to have to travel to a physical place. No longer are you going to have to seek this physical priest there. No longer are you going to have to bring this sacrifice because I am going to become the temple that lives with inside of you. I am going to be the priest who will tell you that your sins are forgiven. And not only that, I'm going to one it up one more time. I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice and lamb for you whose blood was shed so that way your debt could be paid. Man, I don't know about y'all, but that's good news. That's amazing. But obviously they are frustrated by this because it's going to, again, eliminate a system that was good for them. It's going to eliminate a way that some people were interested in. You know, the truth is today some of us still have certain things that we hold in a high esteem that we don't need to. There are biases, there are traditions that we have that in themselves are not necessarily bad. But when they're held to a certain standard, it can become sinful and bad. What Jesus has begun to try to do here is unravel things that are just traditional, things that are religion. They are um, yellow tape that you have to try to wade your way through. And he begins to just start to say, it is going to be more simple because all you have to do is come to me. It is going to be more simple. You're not going to have to bring this sacrifice. You're not going to have to seek this priest. You're not going to even have to travel to this temple because I am an all-in-one shop. Because I am God and I am good. Now, we dovetail this story with a story that immediately follows it. And immediately following this story, what we end up having is the author of this gospel writes about his encounter with Christ. This gospel is written by Matthew. That's why it's called the Gospel of Matthew. I know it's pretty interesting, right? Uh, who would have thought? And Matthew was actually one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Matthew was a tax collector by trade. And tax collectors in that culture, especially with, within the Jewish culture, were hated, terrible people. The reason why is they, they sort of worked outside of the normal good sort of Jewish area. What they would do, quite literally, I know this probably is going to blow your mind, but they would collect the taxes. That's why they're called tax collectors. I'm, I'm dropping some kind of crazy truth bombs on you, right? You're learning some stuff. But what would happen with the tax collectors is the tax collectors oftentimes, to make extra money, would just charge extra, and they would keep extra. And so what began to happen for them, and I imagine tax collectors would have been kind of lonely, awful lifestyle, because what they would do is they would end up alienating themselves from their Jewish community, but they also weren't really accepted by sort of the, the Roman community, the secular community of the day. And so they're kind of in this caught in between um, outsiders that no one really liked. Probably even the tax collectors didn't really like each other or themselves. And so Matthew is this tax collector, and I want to read this story of his calling. Just says this, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. What a speech, right? I'm always impressed by this story. Because sometimes people I've heard make the argument where they're like, well, you know, like if you're the author and you didn't have the firsthand account or you couldn't remember everything that they said, like we're talking about Matthew. A tax collector would have been someone who would have been pretty meticulous at keeping records. That's why I really love the Gospel of Matthew and trust it, is this guy would have been very meticulous. He would have kind of had probably a good memory and known these things. And he's writing his own story. And he doesn't write out this eloquent, like, uh, you know, let me give you this kingdom of God, la, la, da, da, da. Jesus literally just says, follow me. That's it. Nothing less, nothing more. What a powerful little sermon, right? And Matthew responds. To me, it comes back to this authority piece. Follow me is not a good argument. It's not a good persuasion, is it? What I think is happening in the midst of this story is Matthew 1 has probably been hearing about what's going on with Jesus. But 2, Jesus in his authority, the things he's doing, the way he's teaching, is drawing Matthew in. So Matthew begins to follow him. And the story continues on. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, again, note the fact that typically people put things in order, right? They might put the worst first. The fact that they categorize this idea that you got the tax collectors and the sinners, again, kind of shows where the tax collectors were on the social uh, bracket. They were hated even more than just the regular sinners. They're eating with the disciples. When the Pharisees, those are the teachers of law, saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Wow. I love this story. So again, we have the author. He writes just this simple moment of how he's called. It's beautiful. Sometimes I think we, we get, lost, uh, get lost in words and imagery and things like that. And sometimes simplicity just tells it all. And that's what happens with Matthew. But immediately what ends up happening is Jesus is sitting with these people who the rest of the world, and in particular the religious world of the day, saw as outsiders, sinners, not worthy, terrible people. And they're asking what's going on. You see what's happening in this moment is the authority is continuing on in a way that they don't like, the religious leaders of the day, that is. You see, it's, it's, it's one thing to just say, hey, I can forgive your sins. It's one thing to begin to amplify and add on to what the, the Torah, the law already taught. But now you're beginning to take people who don't look like me, people who I deem as other, as unworthy, as just broken, flawed people, and you're beginning to invite them in? And this is what's happening. Jesus is just wiping every notion that we had away. You know, the truth is we can still fall into this trap, right? Sometimes in our pursuit of holiness, which is good, this idea of being set apart from the rest of the world, what we begin to try to do, with which I think with good meaning sometimes, is we become so tucked away in a holy huddle that we miss the exact people that Jesus is calling us to interact with. One of my favorite authors, Bob Goff, talks about how I've spent my whole life avoiding the people Jesus would spend his whole life engaging. Remember the first time I read that, I was like, I'm convicted. I'm terrible. But it's true. And so when Jesus begins to sit with the sinners, the tax collectors, he's begun to make a 
just incredible statement about his kingdom and he as a king. And it's just this, that the kingdom is for all. That the kingdom isn't just for one segment of people, that it's not just for people who are good, who are righteous. And not only that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. You know what I think about that? That's good news for me. That's really good news for me. It may be really good news for you. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. As much as I try and try and try, I fail and fail and fail. As much as I want to be good, I'm not. Because the reality is, I need a Savior. And the truth is, you do too. At the very end, Jesus just hits, hits home kind of the nail on the head. He talks about this imagery of the healthy are not the ones who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, I know we have a lot of medical professionals in our, in our uh, church, and I know that there are like things which are good of like normal checkups, but it's probably frustrating sometimes when you bring a perfectly healthy person into a hospital, right? Because they don't need to be there. Most doctors, most nurses, most people who, who did those things, they didn't go into the profession to just sort of like hang out with healthy people. They went in the profession to help heal people who are sick, to help in times where they are just broken and in desperate need of care. That's why they do it. And so Jesus just says, I didn't come. He basically like steps over the Pharisees and like, listen, I didn't come for you, even though low key I did because you're not getting it. But it's the people who you say are cast off, who should never be thought about again, who are beyond disrepair, that I have come. I have come for them. And I don't know about you, but the good news is I probably identify more with the tax collectors and the sinners than I do with the Pharisees. I wish I could say that I was perfect. I wish I could say all those things, but I'm not. My favorite thing that Jesus does is he nails it home with this. He quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Go and learn what this means, which in the original Greek basically says, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That was a joke. It doesn't really say that. But that's essentially what he's saying. He he basically is dissing them hardcore. I love how Jesus, low-key, is kind of sarcastic sometimes, especially with the people who think they got it all together. He's like, listen, y'all think you're smart. Go relearn this piece that is in the Old Testament. And he just says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the original Hebrew word for mercy there is better translated to steadfast love or compassion. So essentially what he's saying is, I desire for you to have compassion more than I desire your sacrifices. And this morning, may you know that I believe if Jesus was here this morning, he would say to you too, I desire your whole heart. I desire for you to experience and give out love and compassion. I want you to love me more than I want you to perform for me. I don't want you just to show up to church, to give your tithe, to to, to serve in some way and check off those boxes to say, sweet, I did it. But I want your heart to be transformed. I want those things to flow out of a love that you have for me because I have a love that has flown out of me into you. That's what he wants. I'm going to invite the band back up, and they're going to close out with one more song in just a minute. But this morning, as we end, I want to watch a quick video. 
Because I think maybe this video may be important for some of us to see this morning. Uh, a number of years ago, there was this, this sort of mini-series put together on the story of the Bible. And it kind of went on some of the highlight points of the Bible. Really interesting. It may still be on Netflix. I'm not sure. Um, but anyways, uh, I will forewarn you because some of you may be like, whoa, that's not 100% accurate. Um, you know, because they were cramming in an entire Bible into a short mini-series, they took some creative liberties. And in my opinion, this is just my opinion, you can disagree with me and say I'm an idiot, which could be very well true. Um, when things aren't 100% accurate when people retell certain things from the, from the story of the Bible, in my opinion, as long as the deep-rooted meaning of what Jesus was trying to convey, the truth of the words are there, then to me I don't really care. It's not that big of a deal. Hopefully, if anything, it causes people to say, let me go and find out what the Bible says myself. But I want you to watch this clip because what they did in this is they took the retelling of the calling of Matthew and they added and combined with it a parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. And it's really powerful. And you might cry. I hope you do. I cried the first time I watched it. I cried this week when I watched it again. But check out this story. Check out this video real quick. And maybe you can relate to Matthew in this moment. They're all Jews. How can they live with themselves? Our own people working for Rome. These people make me sick. Collaborators, let's move on. They're stinking vermin. You should keep your distance from Two men. Went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. And the other one. A tax collector. The Pharisee prayed. God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thieves. Adulterers. Or this tax collector. But the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Bless the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Anyone who praises himself will be humbled, and anyone who humbles himself will be praised. Matthew, 
come. that scene. Again, accuracy, throw it out the window for a moment. I love that scene because there's just something deeply impactful and beautiful about humbling oneself and just reaching out to the God of all the universe who placed the stars in the sky, part of the Red Sea, made dry bones come to life, who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to die for us. That even after laying in the grave for three days, rose again. That that God deeply and desperately wants us just to reach out and ask for mercy, ask for grace, ask for help, ask for forgiveness. And man, is He good and will He do it? This morning, I, I invite you as we're going to pray and as we're going to sing one last song. So maybe this is the morning in which everything changes for you. In which you reach out and, and you don't have to, you can look up, you can do whatever you want, but just reach out. Maybe this morning for you, you just need to reach out and say, God have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. And when you do, may you hear the words, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Man, I love you. Get inside here. But on the other end, there may be some of us this morning that whether we want to admit it or not, we may identify with the Pharisees more than we like to admit. May you know that there's always the opportunity to turn around, to seek mercy, to seek forgiveness, and begin to live more like Jesus. Not so nitpicking on people, not so judgmental, but also going to a place where you are dining with the sinners and the tax collectors of our day. Would you stand as we're going to pray and we're going to sing. God, I thank you just so much for who you are. God, I thank you that you are so good. God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you are a friend of sinners. Because, God, I count myself in there. God, each day, your mercies are new. And so, God, this morning, I pray for those who maybe for the first time ever, maybe they're praying to you right now in this moment, asking, God, have mercy on me. Forgive my sin. Would they know that you are good? and that you will forgive them and that you love them. God, may all of us be changed by the authority of your Son, Jesus. May all of us be changed by the forgiveness that is free for us. And may all of us seek it. God, we love you. And God, we thank you for the King. And God, help us to pursue His kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.